0: Welcome to Who's Next, a podcast about lifting people up to celebrate them and for others to learn from. At the end of each interview, I ask my guests, Who's Next, giving them an opportunity to nominate someone they know and find inspiring. Today, I'm uncovering an episode from the Who's Next pre-pandemic archive from August 2019. In this episode, I have a conversation with Georgia Atlesi, a creative producer whose mission is to make big ideas more accessible through culture. Georgia is a self-described culture omnivore and the founder of Pudding, a post-event forum for audiences to digest what they've seen on stage. Georgia's passion for culture is completely infectious. Although nearly four years on from our discussion about making the arts more accessible, meaningful, easier to digest and inclusive, it's just as relevant to the world today. I hope you enjoy hearing about Georgia's mission to demystify the arts sector and feel inspired to check out something new. Welcome, Georgia, to the Who's Next podcast. Thanks so much, Zara. It's, it's so very exciting to be here. I also feel like each time there's like a slightly different quirk of how it's recorded.
1: Now we're on this. I like to describe, almost like tiny little sofa. It's, it's small, cozy. it's small, let's run for a third. <laughs>
0: yeah, a very small third in the middle. But thank you so much. And I, I actually, so you were nominated by your friend and businesswoman and CEO, Goodly, Amy Williams. And I texted her earlier today and I was like, come oh, I'm meeting George. She's like, I'm really excited. Like, I'm sure you'll love her. So she was very inspired by you and, and said that you're doing so many different kind of creative things. And so just to kick off, I just thought it'd be great if you could just talk a little bit about kind of what you're doing at the moment.
1: So, I describe myself as a culture wanker. So my whole shtick is using culture to make big ideas more accessible. So taking concepts or ideas that might be challenging or intimidating and finding a way that represents them, using the arts to make ideas more accessible. So I've worked across projects around philosophy, poetry, climate change, all trying to open up these quite intangible, quite messy or sticky subjects to allow audiences and members of the public to feel empowered to take action and, and act on subjects that to them, that they would normally feel excluded from. So at the moment I am running the Forward Prizes for Poetry, um, which are major national poetry awards and the national campaign to promote philanthropy in the arts and that's called the Acadia's Philanthropy Prize and then on the side I obviously do some consulting and uh, some advising but I'm setting up a project called Pudding that I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more.
0: So before we kind of get into the details of some of these like, amazing and very varied things that you do, like why? Why did you decide to, to kind of try and make it more accessible for other people like what was was there like a moment where you felt excluded from the arts or
1: was it that you saw other people like what was kind of your route? So I have never felt excluded or that there are barriers to my participation in culture and um, and actually it was through it was cumulatively through looking at other people's experiences of engagement in the arts, I realised that actually I was the anomaly and not the and not the the rule as it were. So I have never walked into a theatre or felt out of place or walked into an art gallery or, and not felt like I understood the rules. But I was increasingly aware that for the majority of people that, that, that can be quite a stifling or intimidating experience, you know, from not knowing what to wear to whether or not you can cough at a particular moment. The culture's kind of aura creates itself, kind of builds it as being quite, potentially quite elitist mm. and, and also quite unwelcoming. The culture sector has the highest levels of trust out of any sector in the UK and yet it does increasingly and still feel like a private members club. So what I wanted to do was look at why I felt like it was a space for me, but why all of the people around me felt like it wasn't for them. And I was increasingly concerned by the work that was coming out from recent reports around around work and around diversity and inclusion, um, and actually, while it was important to be focusing on breadth of engagement, which I think is something that is really exciting, that's happened in the UK in the last um, 20 years with Arts Councils, focus on that as a strategy. What I'm most excited by is focusing on depth of engagement because really we should all feel like we've got a toss up between going to the pub and going to the theatre. And yet I had kind of built this reputation as being the cultured friend amongst my friendship group. And it's exhausting. It's great to have a culture friend. It is great to have a culture (laughs) friend. But being the person that is everyone's go-to for recommendations for exhibitions with their mum or what's on at the theatre, I wanted people to feel like they had ownership over that. And I didn't want to be the person that was the... The only person that felt part of that world. Yeah. So it was looking at ways to involve other people in culture because it's so empowering. And that moment where you see something, there's a really amazing moment in a book I brought with me here by Durga Chews Bose, who's an American writer. And the book is called Too Much and Not the Mood, and I'd really recommend everyone reads it. And she talks about the spiked measure, in the insourcing panic of the spiked measure of awe when you go and see something and all of a sudden your senses are kind of heightened and you're kind of scared by the fact that you've been kind of let in on a secret. I wanted more people to feel like that. Not in a patronising way or a paternalistic way, but I wanted audiences um, and my friends, crucially my friends, to feel empowered so that we can all be culture workers together. And what difference
0: do you feel that you've made? You've been doing some mentoring, some judging, you've set up initiatives. I saw you at the Roundhouse, which I love because I am near the Roundhouse have a lot of things for access for the arts, like under twenty fives. So I used to be on Roundhouse Radio, and, <laughs> and, I was, and I was like in my early twenties, and I used to just see all these kids. Like little bands in the studios, and it was just so great, like that they were able to get studio time and stuff. So, I love the roundhouse, so I love to. Hear yeah, on. of
1: course. I mean, the roundhouse for me has been completely transformational. So, I was accepted onto their co working hub pilot. So, the roundhouse is quite excitingly making plans for a new building on their site, and in order to road test the space. They ran a co-working pilot for creative entrepreneurs. It was the first scheme that they'd done for people up to the age of 30, which meant that I was able to apply because spoiler alert, not everyone in the arts who's just about getting their head around being an entrepreneur or, or setting up a project is under 25. I know when I got to 25
0: I was like,
1: oh. I know, and, and I'm you know, out. <laughs> but you kind of think that if National Rail is clocking that, that 30 yeah. is the new 25, that everyone else needs to follow suit. So the roundhouse set up what was essentially a co-working pilot but actually what turned out to be more meaningfully fully for, for all of us there a a creative incubator so there was about 20 of us that were accepted into the cohort and we were given not only space to be working on our work and projects and like i said i met run these fantastic prizes the forward prizes and the Acadies Prize but also some really interesting provocations and access to opportunities such as how to market, how to pitch. We've had business mentoring sessions with kind of chief execs of major kind of businesses and, and, and access to those opportunities has been completely transformational. So when I started at the Roundhouse in January I very much thought I was a freelancer and now I've gone ten steps back because now I think of myself as an entrepreneur. And those skills are particularly lacking in the creative industries because we are by and large a subsidised sector so the idea is that we don't need to have the skills in finances or managing or marketing because the money that we receive will always be handouts and therefore we um, don't need to learn how to make something financially kind of solvent Mm -hmm. so what i think is really interesting both about that program at the roundhouse and what i'm trying to do with pudding is to demonstrate that arts organizations in order to um, democratize their audiences need to be thinking more strategically about where their funding is coming from as well so very interesting before we go on to what pudding
0: is amy sent me a question to ask you which very much ties into what you just said she says how do you manage the balance between artistic integrity and financial gain? Because I think that is something where the arts are meant to, or seen by quite a lot of people as a thing, that's quite liberating, you're, you're kind of demonstrating your skills, but also like helping other people see things in different ways or whatever. But it's not charity. Like to, to be artistic is, like people have a job, <laughs> that, that is their job to be an artist or to be a writer, etc.
1: And um, so, can, how do you approach that? So I think, and I think that this comes back to exactly what we've just been talking about. So for the last 50 years, I mean, the UK government has had an amazing approach to culture, which is that access to culture is a right. We've talked about all the reasons it's important. It changes your attitudes to big social ideas or it introduces you to kind of confidence levels that you might not have thought that you had access to. As a result, culture feels like something that we're all entitled to. And because we're all entitled to it, there's a state subsidy for it and a state provision. Mm-hmm which means that arts organisations can feel like they, or it can seem that arts organisations are there to spend other people's money. Mm. Increasingly, um, given the uh, challenging, I mean euphemistically, the challenging financial (laughs) uh, climate that we've seen ourselves in, particularly since 2008, there's been an increased focus on necessity for arts organisations to be more financially solvent. Funds that were previously available are now kind of, running out and and similarly sponsorship isn't there in the same way that it was say pre-2008. So arts organisations are in this bind between providing virtues and values and being kind of our moral flag kind of flagpole if you like but then also making sure that they are able to wash their face Um, and for me the answer is always in your audiences and whether or not you are giving your audiences the things that they want to be consuming because if you have a set purpose in terms of people that you want to reach and your programming content that speaks to a particular demographic then your organisation is going to be successful and it is going to therefore be financially resilient. And it is really tough because in order for culture to be accessible parts of it should be free and I would hate for us to move to models where every artistic experience was paid for but I think looking more strategically around the arts organisations that are doing particularly well at the moment in the UK they are the ones who created a business model where they are subsidising their charitable or free performances using higher ticketed or paid-for commercial experiences. So I think it's a tough toss-up. It's going to be really tough for the arts to always know where to stand on it, but I guess it comes back to the purpose of that organisation and why it exists.
0: When I think of people that I know who their jobs are, either artists or um, painters or things mm. that I think of traditionally that kind of culture, sector jobs, mm. they come from backgrounds where they could afford to not be paid that much for their job,
1: yeah. so that they can do the thing they love. Exactly, and the Royal Society of Literature has just done a really interesting study which is looking at Virginia Woolf's, a rim of one's own, 90 years or 100 years on, and looking at what you need today in order to be able to write. And, and the base layer, salary, in order to be able to provide you know, a substantial income in order to be able to write or to be able to think creatively is high and the problems facing people are isolation and not having a network and, and it's much easier to do it if you've got a partner that is supporting you. Interestingly, I was having a chat with a very brilliant man called Charlie Dawson a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about the relationship between startup mentality and being a commercial Kind of operation and individuals can be a commercial operation. It's just about the way you think about yourself if you're trying to keep the status quo and keep a steady amount of income coming in and just slowly get better at the work that you're doing, or if you want to exponentially grow and test and grow and test. And so I think there are lots of artists and makers who are also caught in that bind. And it actually it's just been the Edinburgh Fringe, which is a huge cash burn for so many artists and audiences but primarily artists who feel they have to be there Mm -hmm. in order to showcase their work. So is it expensive to go there? A lot of emerging and fringe companies will lose quite a lot of money by going up there. And actually if you look at the trajectories of successful comedians, um, the amount of money they've sunk into the fringe before they made it big is quite remarkable. I think Michael McIntyre sunk 60 grand into the fringe before he built a name for himself. Mm -hmm. That might not be their the numbers might not be quite right but even an individual taking a comedy show up can expect to lose five grand and that's if they're charging for tickets so it is wow. really challenging and I strongly feel that culture isn't something that we should do just for the love of it. I think the chief executives of arts organisations and charities more broadly should be paid competitive salaries because you don't want there to be a talent drain where where the arts industry is training up these brilliant individuals who are then going off into jobs in other sectors so i do think the sector needs to be paying proper salaries and and you know professionalizing itself which is why initiatives like the roundhouse is so impressive and i'm so delighted that they they have kind of had a transformational impact on your career as well. honestly when when amy said that i was like oh that's so exciting Mm. i'd love
0: to hear more and what i really want to hear about is
1: pudding yes of course so and as a side note i would strongly recommend anyone listening to this podcast and thinking about setting up a business should call their organization a brand some kind of snack or food (laughs) stuff. because if you send an email that says coffee slash pudding everyone opens that email the biggest lesson so far with within kind of six months of pudding Is that the name has been everything. The name for pudding actually came from a peer from the Roundhouse. So we were brainstorming ideas. It went through some terrible iterations beforehand. And so, yeah, the Roundhouse has even, you know, helped me decide the name. So, Pudding is an informal post-event uh, discussion platform for audiences to come and meet and to digest what they've seen. My feeling is that in order for arts organisations to change perceptions around who culture is for and who it's by, so the things I was saying at the start about me feeling like I was a culture wanker, but the people around me not really seeing that or feeling that they were included in that club, is all because the arts don't invite people in enough Um, and when they do invite people in my hunch is often that it is a it's a door painted onto a wall so it looks like something that you should be able to be invited into and then you try to go in and you realize actually the barriers are there still for you so pudding is an informal kind of foyer space based platform for audience members and members of staff from the arts organization to just have a bit of a chat about what they've seen on stage and it might be that you come for a scoop of brownie and then make a dash for it. It might be that you meet someone interesting and talk about what that bit of that play really meant. Or it might be that, as a result of coming and taking part in pudding, you go away with a couple of actions for how you might take make a change for the issue that you've just seen a show about. So if you, I want to use that moment of kind of excitement, that ensorcelled moment of panic that Durga choose bose talks about and use that as a launch pad for us all to do more as a result of what we've seen. And the reason for doing that is because I think that will help the arts to communicate their purpose more effectively and demonstrate that it really is the culture industry, more than any other industry, that transforms our attitudes to the world around us. So I'd like to use it to collect information about the value that culture is having, more broadly, on society generally, in order to secure funding for the sector, in order to diversify audiences and deepen that engagement. So it feels very similar to this. We've both got a milkshake in our hand and the idea is that there'll be some very light touch facilitation, a friendly face to meet you, Mm -hmm. a couple of scoops full of brownie and, and the start of a conversation, there'll be prompts on the table to inspire the conversation if you need it. It'll be free to attend and it'll last for as long as you like because sometimes a bite is enough and sometimes you want you know, you want to eat the whole pie. Pudding is my solution for an art sector that feels intimidating or overwhelming. So, just so I understand where this will
0: pop up, do you have any thoughts about also how you get more people into those stores?
1: Yeah, of course. So, let's take as an example what was the last thing you saw? Like, what was the last cultural experience you had? Like, what was the last gig you saw? Or Because we'll just use this as our example.
0: Oh no, I'm going to be culturally judged. Mm. I went to, I'm going to say his name wrong, which is like hilarious.
1: Oliver Eilison at the Tate Modern. Perfect example, right. So let's say that you go and see Oliver's show at Tate Modern. That is a show that's all about climate change, social impact, the role that individuals can have, looking at the relationship between design and daily life. You feel stimulated, you come out of that show. You've spent £17 on your ticket probably to get in there. And you've gone on a Tuesday at five o'clock when afterwards there was going to be a pudding happening. So as you come out into that lovely foyer in the Blavatnik building, you will go out into the foyer and there will be a few sofas dotted around and then you'll be invited to join the conversation. It's worth saying that pudding will often happen after performances that have been free to attend in the first place. And regarding engagement into that cultural experience in the first time, that's the thing that arts organisations are already doing a really good job of. Arts organisations often have audience engagement strategies that are around inviting new audiences to go along and see the shows. You know, from schemes in Southwark around getting local residents to go along to plays that are taking place at the Old Vic or the Young Vic, to the brilliant work The Roundhouse has been doing around broadening engagement for Barbershop Chronicles. Arts organisations are very aware that their marketing needs to be reaching out to more people what i would encourage them to think about is the way that that is translating into depth of engagement i'm not very interested in how many new audience members an arts organization is able to bring into its space i want to know how many of them come back a second time Mm. because if you go and that experience is intimidating or you feel out of place then you're not going to go back and so that is why an initiative or a project like pudding exists because what i really want to do is to encourage individuals and audience members who are the same thing to start to feel at home in these arts organisations. Who knows what will happen, that they might spend an extra fiver on a drink at the bar, they might decide to start volunteering, they might become a friend or decide to start supporting or donating work, or they might just have a really great time. But it's just breaking down um, perceptions around barriers to access. And arts organisations, I think, think that this is something that they're already doing, but I would encourage arts organisations to consider that our relationship with audiences is actually still quite transactional. You pay 15 pounds for the ticket, you go and see the show, you leave, you hope that audience members stick around in the bar afterwards or buy a programme or buy an ice cream in the interval, but you don't give them anything extra. You ask them for their feedback by a digital kind of survey monkey form afterwards. And I just think that a little bit of encouragement or facilitation or even kindness, I think it really is as easy as starting a conversation. So putting is my approach to starting a conversation. And it's, I think, probably the thing that I feel like I can do best anyway, which is just start a conversation about effuse. I would say that I'm chief effuser, George Atkinson, <laughs> chief effuser, give me a subject and I'll <laughs> wax lyrical about it for 20 minutes.
0: Part of the enjoyment of going to see something cultural is like that digestion and the conversation afterwards. But I think there can be that thing where if you don't feel like you are cultured, you don't really know what to say, like, the colours were really nice. And so I guess it's like hand-holding and supporting people into maybe experiencing it on a deeper level.
1: Of course, you know, we've all been in a gallery where we've tried to work out how long (laughs) is the right amount of time to stand in front of a painting before moving on to the next one. Or that kind of moment of silence when you come out of an exhibition and or a theatre show and you turn to the person next to you, and neither of you know quite what to say. And it is again around completely um, removing those barriers and, and building confidence so that we can talk about work. I mean, it doesn't matter if the thing that you like most about an exhibition was the frames that all the pictures were in, or the fact that the aircon was absolutely great. I want p- pudding to be a, an opportunity for audiences to fail, to to start talking about things, to get things wrong, in order to build up their confidence. And that's why there will be no members of staff from the show present. So if you think about normal, if you've seen something that you really love, so let's say that you've just seen Wild Swimming, which is a brilliant show at the Edinburgh Fringe, and you want more from that. And the only thing that you can go and do afterwards in order to kind of savour that experience is watch the director and the writer and one of the actors talk quite self-effacingly on stage about how brilliant the cast were and how it's all someone else's work. And you've got audience members saying, I've got a question, but it's not really a question. It's more of a statement. And then launching into their potted kind of CV history. <laughs> I want to give audiences another way of having that conversation. So the bar conversation. My hunch is that all the best conversations happen. On the tube ride home, or in the bar afterwards, and I want arts organisations to know that. I want them to see what is making people excited, or you know how brilliant the woman's next to them shoes were. Because actually, all of those social things are the reason we go to the theatre. We go to the theatre, and Amber Massey Blomfield, who's a really brilliant kind of individual within the theatre industry, talks about in her book. She talks about the silent prayer that every theatre attendee makes. The, the moment as the lights go down, which is the prayer that everyone makes, which is please let this be good. And yeah, everyone does so it at exactly <laughs> the same time. And then there's that moment at the end where everyone's kind of kind of digesting that last mouthful. And then we all go off into the night. So putting as a platform, a playful platform for people to fail and to get things wrong. And to get to know each other. I mean when you go to a festival, you're surrounded by two thousand other people who've bought into the same vision that you've bought into. And you feel more uh, liberated to chat to everyone because you've, you know, you've signed up for that same kind of Woodstock utopia mm-hmm. for two days. You know, you've gone to Latitude or you've gone to Glastonbury. And everyone is there because they've all laid the cards on the table and says, this is how I want to live for a couple of days. When mm-hmm. you go to the theater, it's exactly the same thing. Every like, If you've got an audience of 500 people, all of those 500 people have got something in common, which is they decide there's something about that show that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And in an age where particularly under 30s are feeling isolated and lonely, what an amazing opportunity, you've got an amazing vehicle for, for chatting and starting a conversation with someone.
0: It sounds like with your mentoring, with this, like you're naturally quite a supportive person, you're, you want to kind of support people in enriching the cultural experiences they're having you want to support people in being able to access those experiences in the first place where do you get your support from so who supports you and created this supportive (coughs) beast
1: (laughs) so um and again this comes back to to why i think a concept like pudding is important is that for my entire life, I've been surrounded by the most badass network of women. You know, from the age of 14, I'd go around for cups of teas at my neighbour's house, who was a writer who, you know, was kind of 20 years older than me. I've always had these kind of amazing, informal mentors. Women, normally women, question mark, let's discuss, who have... Empowered or encouraged me to to be ambitious and to take risks and to and to enjoy the struggle of something not working out and to and to, to use that as motivation to carry on. What I expect I spend a lot of time in theatres with my head in books and I'm always incredibly hungry for a new cultural experience. So a festival is in a format that I haven't experienced before. I've just come back from the Edinburgh Fringe. Where I saw a Taiwanese show in sign language um, that was told through puppetry about <laughs> about fishing in a rural village, and for me that was incredibly exciting because that was so many concepts that I hadn't seen kind of put together for the first time. So I absolutely love the novelty of a new take or a disruptive take on cultural formats. But I think my inspiration comes from conversations and the idea that any artwork that you engage with or any that you read on the bus or or, or podcasts that you listen to is an opportunity to to challenge the way that you think about something. I guess just being I'm always hungry I'm always I feel like I've got a sponge of a brain I've got a very fizzy brain that is always firing off ideas and thinking about making connections between people I'm just incredibly lucky that the women I've had around me have been connectors and been people that have always put me in touch with other brilliant people. So I've got this virtuous circle of people who are all doing remarkable things. um, Dreamy. And as a result, I want to keep that going because I think that being championed by someone or being welcomed into a club like that is the most important thing you can do is is talk up and talk down as well. So mentoring down, but also having those conversations upwards as well. I think it's kind of a civic responsibility. We should all do it all the time.
0: Yeah, I think it's so important and I don't, especially the whole up and down thing, People don't always think of that as their duty to kind of support and collaborate with others. But then you end up having so many more opportunities, experiences by helping someone else. Not only is it good for them, but it's also it's good for you because you learn something in a different way as well. You
1: lose absolutely nothing by being kind, and it again blows my mind that kindness isn't more broadly kind of acknowledged or uh, integrated as a strategy. But from a very cynical perspective, if you connect two people, you look like a fountain of knowledge mm-hmm. because you look like an expert, um, and you've seen that they the <clears> need of both of them it'll work. Well, exactly, yeah. or you become that kind of. Malcolm Gladwell idea of the connector, who is the, you know, in the tipping point where he talks about the people that make ideas ignite are actually the people who aren't the early adopters, but who also aren't the late adopters. They are The people, Exactly. <laughs> They're the people that connect other people's ideas mm-hmm. and that has always been the most interesting role for me. I'm not saying I'm a Gladwell connector, mm-hmm. but what I am saying is that I think there is immense joy to be had from that kind of facilitation. And because that's where interesting conversations happen. Who inspires you?
0: If you were to recommend one book, one thing to watch, one thing to listen to.
1: There are two books that I read at very pivotal moments um, that completely transformed or just gave me hope. And one of them is Rebecca Solnit's book Hope in the Dark, which is a take at the, the importance of hope and optimism. And she and at the time I read it, I was working for a climate change charity where the mission was to communicate climate change more effectively to the art sector. And as we will all be feeling at the moment, we're living in an age of not just global heating, but we're also living in an age of eco-anxiety. And Rebecca Solnit has this beautiful book where she looks at the importance and the excitement of not knowing what's coming next. And she talks about the dark, which we're in theory all terrified of, as being as much pregnant with possibility as the unknown. So this idea that you just because you don't know what's around the corner doesn't mean that it's going to be terrifying, that we should celebrate that. So that book um, was completely transformational. Did you used to have
0: anxiety about what was around the corner and that helped, or, or not so much?
1: I, I mean, I would say surely we are all... Mm-hmm. The thing that gives us all most anxiety is the unknown right Mm -hmm. from climate change to death to not knowing how the date you're going on tomorrow Mm -hmm. is going to be the thing that we all feel nervous about is that lack of control Mm -hmm. and and that sense of the unknown and actually what Rebecca Solnit has done in that book is to say let's be empowered by that because we can also shape it. She has a great line in there, that book where she talks about it always being too soon to leave the party. And that idea that we always leave just before things are about to get kind of brilliant, that we kind of lose our nerve just at the wrong moment. And the more that you can hold out, the better, better it's going to be, which I found very encouraging. And then the book that I've brought you, Zara... You're so kind, thank you. Oh, I'm good, I'm good, <laughs> is... And it's called The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. And it's a little £1 Penguin Modern book. And it is just a series of five essays that she looks at power structures across gender, race, sexuality, and her role as a poet, as how the arts, and particularly a creative or progressive approach to problem solving is the key to the world that we all want to live in. She was a lesbian, working class, black poet in the 1960s, you know, who had horrible health problems as well. And the first essay in this book is called Poetry is Not a Luxury, which when I read it at the start of the year, just it gave me all of the confidence that I needed to embark on what has been quite a radical and transformational six months. So I'd recommend anyone listening to go out and pick out that book. And if you ever bump into me, I've always got about five copies in my bag. That's so nice. Oh,
0: Thank I'm a good you. soul. Yeah, you reminded me of like a, a few things, but one of them is uh, a lady was referenced on the previous podcast, a lady called Pinky Lalani, and she always has five gold coins like gold, chocolate coins, and she just gives them out as like a random act of kindness, which mm. I think is adorable. And also, the first book was it Hope in the Dark. Carol Russell, who was uh, she's a TV writer, and she was my guest uh, on the podcast a few episodes ago. She said that like perseverance is all, like that is her kind of approach in life, and it's so true because it's quite often, you know, like the darkest hours before the dawn or whatever. In those times that you think you're going to give up, you're like just need to keep pushing through. Um, so my next question would be: You've obviously had an amazing year, an amazing six months. What have been the darker hours, and like, how did you get through them? I
1: think whenever you're starting something new, you're plagued by doubt. You're plagued by whether or not what you're doing is a waste of time. I think the thing that I feel most haunted by is mediocrity. And when I was growing up, I had a quote on my mirror that I looked at every single morning and said it's not how good you are it's how good you want to be and I used to think about that every single day which is how good do I want to be I think the hard thing for anyone is working out what is the thing that they want to dedicate their life to and I have always felt that I've got a good idea in me but I just didn't know what it was I've also, as I've said, I've got a really fizzy brain, which means I'm incredibly easily distracted, which means that I don't have the courage of my convictions to settle down and pick an idea. So I have always worried that I'm a nearly person. And by that I mean someone that nearly does things. And I was thinking about this on the bus up here actually, is that you don't really get any points for doing the working out in real life. You don't get any points for doing the thinking that goes into Projects, if you don't actually realise them, and my biggest anxiety is always that I will be someone that talks a lot and actually doesn't make change happen, which is why I'm going hell for leather with pudding at the moment. I'd also like to say that you have sounds like you've done loads
0: <laughs> from knowing <nowhere> you for about <laughs> half an hour, so don't worry about that. My my mum actually says something f- so harsh if I if I'm sort of doing a nearly, she says nearly never does anything, Zara. <laughs>
1: But I, do, so much. but I do think that that is right and I think that while it shouldn't be the stick that women beat themselves over the head with or anyone beats themselves over the head with I do think that it is that mentality that makes me feel determined mm-hmm. to go further One idea that has, that has driven absolutely everything that I have done or been interested in since, you know, since school is that idea that the whole purpose of culture is to make the stone stony So to make the world around you seem a little bit more real as a result, that culture actually isn't escapism, but what it does is shines a mirror on the world around it. And I guess if you go and take part in something, you go and see something, my biggest anxiety is that we take all of those things we see and we don't do anything with it. You know, I have spent the last... 15 years seeing you know a play a week or going to a live event a week and i don't have anything to show for that other than that i have this status amongst my group of friends and i think we should all be using the kind of the untapped potential of that moment of when an idea is handed over to you to actually do something with it so i would say that being an early person is the thing that gives me most anxiety. But then you're taking action
0: and you'll do it so you obviously thought back and thought all of those things, which I'm sure actually probably enriched your brain and how you think about things, how you make connections, how you communicate, probably over those 15 years all of those experiences were, but you then wanted to push more and do something more concrete and so putting, it sounds like, is kind of that next step of... Getting other people, not just yourself, but other people to digest and like take action.
1: 100%. The challenges thing is really hard, and I think that the solution to it is always talking to other people. I felt so much more confident about my status as a freelancer and as a creative entrepreneur when I met other people at the Roundhouse who were taking the same risks mm-hmm. as I, who were who decided that the nine to five jobs that we'd had before, whilst enriching and in professions that we were excited by and interested in, and I have been so lucky, I've had six years of working as a creative programmer, you know, producing live events with brilliant organisations. But the feeling that that nine to five lifestyle wasn't quite giving us the flexibility to go off and be disruptive in the way that we wanted to, and having a group of peers to bounce ideas around with was completely transformational i think that shows also the power of like community network and support like
0: you can have you can think you're quite lonely or or just you're doing something and maybe not understood or whatever but actually if you find other people who have similar missions then you are, you even get more invigorated to, to make change, even if it's not the same thing.
1: Exactly, and it's actually even better when it's not the same industry as your own, because that outside eye on it can be so much more interesting. And it's all about that unexpected connections thing. What are you most proud of?
0: I feel like I've asked you like a challenging question, but you've obviously done lots of amazing things as well. Like, what did you really enjoy?
1: The thing that I am proudest of is the pe- is the network of people that I have around me. I feel so like I move to the point of tears when I think about it which sounds like the most insane thing to say when I think about the remarkable people that I know in this incredible patchwork of people who range from photographers to personal trainers to you know giants in the in the street food world to brilliant embroiderers and I feel the thing that I feel very very proudest of it's all of the brilliant people that I know. And, you know, I've produced events that have been incredibly exciting. You know, I worked on a project with Poet in the City at St Paul's Cathedral. that was about changing attitudes to St Paul's Cathedral, which is this overwhelming, iconic space that as a Londoner, unless you're religious, you don't really feel like you have a handle on. And the hope was that we'd introduce 500 young people to that space and 2000 turned up, and that was you know, nothing I ever do will feel quite the same as what it meant to introduce those 2,000 young people into that space. I feel very resilient as an individual now which again, I don't think two years ago I would have said. And actually, I think there's real uh, value in getting your head around these incredibly difficult ideas. You know, I don't feel intimidated or scared about climate change anymore. Mm. And I think Which is amazing because
0: I think a lot of people do and they don't know what to do with it. <laughs> exactly.
1: But if I did, and but, but I think you have to take hope in it. Because if we did mm-hmm. feel like it was a lost cause, and we'd all be working in oil, right? Mm-hmm. We'd all be making hay all the sunshine. We'd be out there trying to make as much money as we could because we felt doomed and i think the most important thing is to remain optimistic or hopeful to be hopeful is 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 brave because and again this is rebecca Solner, she talks about how to be hopeful is to be brave it's to it's to uh, believe in the idea that another, better world is possible. And I think that that is the most exciting and kind of empowering thing and probably something that unites a lot of the women that you've been chatting to. Mm. All of these women, all of these disruptors are talking about the idea that a better version of the world exists. And that might be Helen's brilliant kind of projections around careers and kind of squiggly lines and not having to fit into that nine to five. Or it might be Amy's idea that if you're giving your attention to, to a company that charities can be benefiting from it so that idea in a better version of the world i think is so exciting and so inspiring beautifully summed up i think the idea of resilience
0: and actually i think we're all a bit of a product of whatever we've overcome and then you you make your decision to kind of do something positive in the world do something about that so yours is kind of in the area of culture and the arts as you mentioned with amy's hers Mm -hmm. is around like making ad spend for good and then yeah like Helen and lots of other people are identifying something that's a tension point for them or something they're interested in and making change so I like love what you're doing. Do you have like a like a mantra or a piece of advice that you either give to other people or that you live by?
1: I think it's really important not to take yourself too seriously. Really, really important. I think that the a level of formality or a kind of professionalism can actually make you come across as intimidating and unapproachable. So I think my approach has always been to be quite clumsy, deliberately quite clumsy. <laughs> you know, like the pratfall effect. Have you heard of that? Tell me. So it's the idea that people like people more if they're flawed.
0: I think they did some tests where they had people interviewed for the same role, but someone spilt the coffee. And actually, if you like someone, and then they do something like a little bit clumsy, people like it more because you feel like you're—they're not at like, this perfect, polished thing. Yeah,
1: it's—it's it's humanizing. Yeah. So I think life should be a process of continual uh, improvement, and I hope. That as a 70 year old woman, I will feel more like myself than I do as a 28 year old woman, in the same way that as a 28 year old woman, I feel more like myself than I did as a 16 year old Mm -hmm. or 17 year old. Like we're all work in progress. I've spent a lot of time reading philosophy and poetry, and there are beautiful lines in there that will, you know, capture your heart for kind of weeks at a time. But I don't have one, I don't have anything. I'd be prepared to get inscribed in my body yeah mm.
0: yeah I'm that like one nugget that sums it all up but also I think as, a, as someone who is clearly like an appreciator of the arts and culture that like you can just continue to keep getting inspiration and that's part of it in itself
1: oh you know what i'm completely wrong (laughs) i have actually written down (laughs) (laughs) i love this um epiphany moment yeah i because actually i was thinking about i was thinking about the banality of advice and
0: um, (laughs) how rubbish this question is
1: advice is always very well-meaning and but it's always completely subjective right yeah i completely agree and actually if i think about the one thing that i think about more than anything it's a song that baz lerman made in the 90s called trust me on the sunscreen and it is such a great song and it's his take on the world right and there's a line in it that says you know maybe you'll marry maybe you won't maybe you'll have children maybe you won't maybe you'll dance the happy chicken on your 40th wedding anniversary You know, he's talking about all these different versions of what a life might might look like. And then he says, but in the end, the road is long and the race is only with yourself. And I think that that has always been a really encouraging attitude, which is to take your time, which again is something that Durga Chew-Bose talks about, that there is no rush and why you should be ambitious we shouldn't necessarily feel rushed into creating or rushed into a, com- a completionist approach that actually savoring things can be where the real value of things comes from i would say that i'm not an inherently competitive person as well i think i would much rather be thought of As a good person or as a kind person than as a successful person Mm. and I hate the idea that any behavior I undertook would be harmful or hurtful to someone Mm. so I guess and again that's quite interesting because it comes back to Amy's question around artistic integrity and cost Mm. is that I would much rather create an experience that was empowering than one that was lucrative so just uh, like you know, be a be a kind person. And I also think that, I think there's a move towards,
0: you can be successful and kind. Yeah. And like, maybe that's not how um, success has previously been set up. And maybe that's not a value that has previously been kind of, oh, they're kind, they're going to be a great leader. But actually, I think more and more, it should be something that is, because you'll probably get results. if you're, If your mission is to be kind, probably the money will come. Realising yeah. that everyone is
1: human and fallible is a thing that's disarming and charming and ultimately empowering because it doesn't suggest any kind of hierarchy or top-down approach. Advice is like a piece of culture. It's like a gift. You decide what you do with it, right? You go and see something or you go and eat something and you decide how delicious that meal was or if you're going to go back again or if it's something that you are going to integrate into your daily life. And I think advice can come from the most unexpected places. You know, I've read articles about artists that have changed the way that I've thought about relationships or I've read lines in books that have thought that have changed the way that I think about you, you know your career and I think if you're supple and you know yourself enough then actually all advice becomes this patchwork of experience and uh, it helps you unlock like, different things yeah yeah and you might not draw on it immediately mm. it might be something that ruminates in the back of your head for three four five years and then you go oh I understand that now I
0: love that you um, Thanks. thank you very much for my book but like that when you see something or you read something that is really um, like has made a positive change that you want to give that to other people which I think is really lovely as well.
1: Yeah uh, but I think that that is part of everyone's you know in a a dream world that's what we should all be doing Yeah like lift each other up. And I feel incredibly proud that I have the most badass group of women around me and that the biggest pleasure that I ever have is introducing them to each other and they're not all women I know some incredible men as well, but I know that in a podcast where we're talking about particularly brilliant women, women are very collaborative and are generous. I mean, everyone is generous, but I think there is nothing nicer than, than introducing one incredibly brilliant person to another incredibly brilliant person. At my birthday this year, I was able to introduce six women who I've known for a really long time, who've never met each other. That's and gone, the best feeling. Like, you do this, you know, you're a- You guys will get on. Then. Yeah, you're a slamming feminist and broader. You should talk to my pal who runs a blog that's all about promoting women in the arts. And you should talk to this brilliant woman who works in film and TV, who's trying to change perceptions around, around data there. You know, it, and it was just so exciting because, I don't know you realize that your network is your is your worth and Mm -hmm. I feel so spoiled that I have you know I feel humbled by the people I know all the time so a beautiful segue there into who's next so you,
0: I love this. This is, it's a horrible question to get people to nominate one person and actually everyone said it's really hard and they don't want to do it and they're like, can they do more than one? So now I've kind of got <laughs> a little bit less strict on it. But so you obviously have this amazing network of people who you're really proud to be part of, who kind of came to your mind as people who are inspirational to you.
1: So, so... There are there's a handful and you can decide which one makes the final cut (laughs) I've got a pal who works in gaming who in a male dominated industry is changing perceptions around video games and who video games are for and she's called Adrienne Law and she works for the company here behind Monument Valley and is doing some really exciting stuff there about changing audiences for video games and what it means to be a gamer then there is Alma and to Patricia who run a company called Vibio which is a, a sex tech company and it is and I met, we met through the roundhouse and their their project is around ownership over female pleasure so creating products that have the woman's experience at their heart and what is so interesting about what they've been doing is they've had a really hard battle in terms of being able to have that conversation at all because people are so squeamish and intimidated by it. And actually, their approach is so liberating and inclusive that i kind of very proud to know them and the work they're doing. And they are prototyping at the moment. And they're doing a really hard thing in a male-dominated industry where it's still very male-gazy. So they are incredibly badass as well. I've got a pal called Neve who is a feminist embroiderer who makes who turned a chronic illness into her into her hobby and her side hustle and now her main hustle. So she creates beautiful feminist artwork that she started as a result of both anxiety and also quite a specialised form of arthritis and is challenging perceptions around disability and and female creativity that I'm really excited by. There's a wonderful academic called Shahid Bari who talks about poetry in a way that will just make you cry even if you wouldn't think of yourself as being a poetry person and she has a background... She's Dr. Shia Bari and she's got a background in literature and philosophy, particularly romanticism, and she's just become... She just started heading up a department at the London College of Communications, looking at the relationship between fashion and philosophy, so taking a Derridian approach to uh, fashion, which is very badass, and her book is called Dressed. Then there's Yasmin Godot, who is insane. <laughs> she runs uh, a business called New Emergence Media and her mission is to connect young emerging people of colour interested in getting into the film and TV industry with opportunities. She become became the poster girl for connecting people, production companies to young talent and instead of... Spending all of her spare time hooking up people with opportunities, she said, "I'm going to turn this into a business." There's loads of brilliant people that she knows, and so she has found way of turning that into a a business and connecting organisations with emerging talent. I feel Um, like she needs to meet Carol Russell, who
0: does something similar for TV writers. Fab. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) uh, yeah. Let's let's. I'm absolutely loving this list, by the way, because they're all people that have in their field, but making it more accessible for other people, like opening. Up.
1: But I really think that that's all of our responsibility. You know, we, if we found the thing that we're supposed to be doing, if we have found that thing that gives us joy, be it advertising or embroidery um, or, or sex tech, we should be encouraging and empowering and inspiring other people to get into the industry. I was so stunned when I started working in cultural programming because it was a career that I had no idea existed I did an English degree and when you're studying people expect that you'll either become a writer or you'll work in publishing I had no idea that all of these amazing other jobs existed in the creative industries so I feel like I need to be a cheerleader for all the brilliant other opportunities that there are out there and all of the people that I've discussed are doing great things to connect other people with opportunities and also just to say hey you're not you're not. You're not by yourself. You're not alone in thinking that this is an interesting way to spend your time. Mm. Let's kind of let's collaborate and make something happen. We are a generation that will have five or six different careers, mm. and I think the most important career that any of us can have is to be a teacher. And I think mm. uh, that idea of educating and empowering and extending your love to other people is the most important or enriching thing that we can all do. So I think it is about taking those qualities and pulling them into our jobs and if I think about the people that I've just chatted about, again it is that thing about empowering and inspiring. You know, I was brought up by a teacher and an artist, so I feel very, very lucky mm-hmm. to have been surrounded by people whose careers are, both of their careers are defined by taking tip you know Tricky subjects and trying to communicate them more mm-hmm. effectively to making audiences. It exactly, and so I do think that we will all have several careers. But in the meantime, I think that the best thing you can do is be an advocate and an ambassador for all the other people around you, and that uh, you know that Man- Malcolm Gladwell connector. Yeah,
0: it's just a lot more fun as well. Yeah, it is. I think it is um, a bit of a wild card one, but talking about making culture accessible. Do you have any like, recommendations for people who feel like maybe they're not very cultural or don't know how to get into it, where to go to?
1: Yeah, there are some really incredible arts organisations out there who are breaking down barriers in an incredibly unintimidating and unpretentious way. The thing that immediately springs to mind is, is Night Shift, which is for those people who are curious about classical music but nervous about it being something for them, and that's run by the Orchestra of the Age of the Enlightenment, um, and that is classical music gigs that happens in pubs where everyone sits on the floor, drinks beers, you can mm-hmm. stand up, you can dance around. Dance into classical music, but the, yeah, exactly, <laughs> nod. Um, but the idea is that it happens late at night, and it's primarily young audiences, it costs a fiver, and, and the pieces are introduced to you in a way that allows you to kind of work that that introduces you to what you should be looking for and that gives you an appreciation of of that work similarly Aurora Orchestra are doing some really interesting work around making classical music unintimidating and the reason I talk about classical music is because that is an art form that I have always felt is something that I would like to be more knowledgeable about but felt like it wasn't an art form for me Mm. I have no musical background at all got to the grade one piano felt like a champion and called it quit so those organizations have shown to me the value of, of, of that more participatory or informal approach. For people who are interested in theatre, I would recommend, recommend organisations like Battersea Arts Centre, Soho Theatre does some really exciting programming, Camden People's Theatre and New Diorama, all organisations that have really lovely bar spaces and are places that you kind of want to hang out and that feel quite buzzy and don't feel like an intimidating place to spend a bit of time a lot of their programming is a little bit more rough and ready which doesn't feel quite as again contrived and for art galleries I just think what the Hayward Gallery has been doing since it reopened is really exciting but if anyone wants cultural recommendations let me know I'm happy to fire off anything. I really should talk about poetry given that I am working with Forward this year there's some really incredible literature and poetry organisations out there. Poet and City have done some staggering work around breaking down barriers to kind of tricky poets and concepts there the Forward Prizes is a really lovely introduction to the 15 kind of best poets of the year so dip your toe none of this stuff costs very much money you know you're looking at five or so but, you know don't feel like you have to spend 40 pounds for a good cultural experience there's some really remarkable stuff out there and what you see just depends on how curious you're prepared to be like your sign language taiwanese <laughs> um, <laughs> puppetry yeah <laughs> but, but also you know i the reason that I went to go and see that is because I've been, because I've been thinking a lot about the way that ideas are communicated. I've been really interested in the role of sign language and how ideas mm-hmm. are communicated physically. So, I spent part of this year learning sign language oh, to cool. see the way that language is, the way that an idea can get from my brain into your brain using my body and not my voice, and mm-hmm. um, and that was really exciting. And again, that is a like that language is blissful because it's. It's playful, it's crude, because it has to communicate the idea as effectively as possible, and as quickly as possible. One thing that I wanted to say around the question of gender is that I think we are wrong to think about it in a silo I think we're wrong to think about gender parity as being separate from gender from, equality yeah exactly yeah. and you know from climate justice to racial equality to conversations around ableism I don't think that this is I don't think we should be fighting a single battle and the most interesting people I know are people who are really challenging themselves on their values who are saying I say that this is something I'm interested in but actually what am I doing as a result of it you know can you call yourself a feminist if you're not campaigning or going on marches and if you're interested in feminism then why aren't you interested in conversations around you know like gender poverty, or, poverty
0: yeah. or classes exactly all.
1: so to me to think about gender in, in in isolation is to overlook the opportunity of the moment that we are on and the, the waves that we are kind of riding which is that there is huge potential to create the world that we want through including everyone so I hope that I hope that we think about equality more broadly and gender equality as being so imbe- you know embedded and invested in all of these other conversations mm-hmm. um, because our duty of care is always with the most vulnerable people and so we should be doing more to think about those people so very finally what are you excited about next I am really excited about getting pudding off the ground. I'm excited for you, it sounds amazing. Thanks very much. (laughs) So just going into uh, development phase with it, so we're going to be piloting uh, in early spring with five to seven venues that I can't wait for. Uh, More immediately, we've got the Ford Prizes and the Katie's Philanthropy Prize coming up in October and November. From a very personal perspective, and in an incredibly London-centric way, as is inevitable, There is just the most incredible harvest of culture dropping in London in the next few months and I absolutely can't wait to go and sink my teeth into it. So there's some really brilliant stuff across venues from the Royal Court to Camden People's Theatre to to the Bunker Theatre which is a really exciting venue in London Bridge and some great exhibitions coming up. But as is I guess the nature of the conversation that you know I'm excited for whatever is next and whoever's next you mm. know I think the best year is the one you've just had or the one you're, you're about to have and the most interesting conversation is just a tap on the shoulder away I
0: feel through the course of this interview that I've got more cultured yeah you're yeah. welcome it, it's an aura I think uh, you yeah. just have like the, the color of culture whatever that is that's your aura um, um, and I love it and your passion for it as well thank you it's been an absolute pleasure. I Thank you up. so much. <laughs> Thank you. And I will, yeah, definitely will stay in touch. Pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find out more about Georgia at pudding.org.uk um, and follow at who's next pod UK to get more podcast updates. Thank you.